Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge um, that we are seated on the land, uh, traditional homeland and contemporary land of the Anishinaabe peoples, Dakota peoples, um, and that this land has also been stewarded by uh, many indigenous peoples throughout the years and today. And so, why do we do this? Remembering that the place where we are um, has what's happened here, and um, it, that it's been a place of deep suffering. And the suffering uh, was primarily caused, I mean, there's many kinds of suffering that have happened here, but there was a big suffering that was caused by um, a white settler colonial mentality. So to acknowledge that suffering and also to acknowledge and remember that um, it's not all suffering. So many other things have happened in this place. Um, people have loved each other and been helpful to each other. Uh, plants and animals have flourished. So we're not, so we're looking at the whole picture and that we come into this practice, into our practice, realizing the ground on which we stand has all of this. And then going forward, what we can do with that acknowledgement is, um, I mean, we could say the three pure precepts, which is uh, vowing to not do harm, vowing to do good, and vowing to free all beings. So that is the stage that I want to set for this talk and actually for, for everything we do here. So thank you for setting that stage with me. So this morning, um, I'd like to talk about enlightenment for everyone. And that's the, also the title of a class that I'll be teaching starting Let's see, we changed the dates. It was going to be starting Wednesday, um, February 8th, but now it's going to start Thursday, February 2nd. So this is also kind of an ad for that. <laughs> um, and so this will be a little bit of a flavor of what we might uh, talk about uh, in, that, uh, in that class. And when I went to change the date, I was actually kind of surprised that no one has signed up yet, but I was kind of glad in a way because I was changing the date, so then it made it easier. But I was just curious about that. I know people are really busy, but I also thought, well, maybe, maybe some people aren't as interested in enlightenment for everyone. They want the enlightenment that is like really special. <laughs> like, I don't want the I don't want the enlightenment that anyone can have. <laughs> I want the really special enlightenment. I don't know. That's certainly, I've felt that in my life at various times. Um, so, and sometimes it's like that. I mean, sometimes there's fireworks and all of this, but usually, um, usually it's more like um, just uncovering what was already there, what was there all along. And that's really what the enlightenment for everyone is. So I wanna talk about um, that I want to talk about one of the 
koans in the Householder Book of Koans, which is a book by um, Eve Myoyan Marco and Wendy uh, Egyoku Nakoa. Uh, Egyoku is the, well, she still is, but she was the main teacher at uh, Zen Center Los Angeles, and she also was really, really helpful to us at a time in our history when we were um, having some difficulties. Um, so anyway, this we're, in the class we're going to use this book as kind of a starting off place for our conversations. Um, so I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about a little bit about the history of this idea of enlightenment for everyone, or original enlightenment, um, and then also leave some time for us to have, a, have some question and answer and discussion. So the um, koan that I'm choosing uh, for us to explore today is called Shinshin, uh, Chishin, or um, Golden Buddha. And here's uh, what, there's a little, um, little preamble verse, which is, when you meet the Buddha, how will you greet him? If you say a word, he can't hear you. If you keep silent, he won't know you are here. Tell me, what do you do? And then here's the koan. And so these are all modern koans. They're not like found in old collections. They're koans that have to do with um, uh, people who have lived uh, in the modern era. One night, Shishin had a dream. He and his teacher were sitting in the meditation hall when a brilliant golden light shone suddenly from a corner of the room. Chishin whispered to his teacher, the Buddha is here. His teacher smiled and said, yes, let's go and greet the Buddha. Chishin did not hesitate. He got up from his seat and walked over to the light, which was so bright he couldn't look at it directly. Lowering his entire body to the floor, he bowed reverently. Prostrated, he felt the warm light wash all over him, and a deep sense of peace welled up inside. Later, his teacher asked, What did the Buddha give you that was not already yours? So then here's the reflection um, from the book. And a little background of that story. Chishin sat zazen for years, even hosting a sitting group and organizing retreats, all the while supporting his family and raising his children. Throughout it all, he experienced a profound dis-ease and felt inadequate as a Zen practitioner. In particular, Chishin was frustrated with his lack of an experience of enlightenment. Having come of age at a time when enlightenment experiences were the gold standard of American Zen practice, he desired an experience so transformative that he would never feel unworthy or have a sense of dis-ease ever again. Settling into the practice of sitting, Shishin realized that one persistent thought came up early each morning. I am not good enough. This life-denying mantra was the background music to his life a tightly woven narrative against which he measured himself, an ever-present destructive and traumatizing voice. 
The more Shishin meditated, the more overwhelmed he felt by this voice. But tell me, did Shishin fundamentally lack anything to begin with? Do you believe that transcendent experiences will eliminate these debilitating voices? So this is, again, still from the commentary in the book. In my own experience, in my own practice, awareness of I am not enough led me to a sad inner child that called out for my attention. I learned to ask her what was wrong and what, it, what was it that she needed. I, I allowed myself to experience her sadness and to give her what she needed. What is your inner child asking of you today? And for some of us, we really connect with the inner child. And for other of us, it's like, woo, that's woo-woo stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so if that language isn't, doesn't fit for you, then it's like really just deeply inside. Like, what is it? What is it that I really deeply want or feel I deeply need? And a lot of times we don't even know. So it's like that looking within. We're asked to turn the light to shine within when we do Zen practice. But we maybe don't want to include the little voices of like, I'm not enough or, you know, I want a hug or, you know, we think, oh, that's not really Zen or that's not really spiritual but to really deeply listen and see if we can include that. So this is, a, this is a suggestion to listen carefully, experience the feelings and tend to them. In this way, you can take care of the persistent voice within. So even if it's a voice that keeps saying, I'm not good enough. And some other things that were asked to consider in the commentary, I'm, I'll come back to these later, but just to let them kind of sink in these questions. What beliefs do you harbor about yourself? Do these beliefs take the form of negative thoughts that are not spoken out loud, but with which you are in constant conversation inside? And do you measure yourself against them without ever questioning their validity? I think that's, that's important. And a lot of times we're sort of not even fully aware of these voices inside and how they're, you know, sort of traumatizing us. And so then if we're not fully aware of them, we're also not able to say, wait a minute, is that true? <laughs> is that really true? Go back to the commentary. In the midst of the rough and tumble of his daily life, Shishin clung to a regular sitting practice. Sitting was what he knew to do, and he did it. The Zen master Kodo Sawaki said, Zazen is good for nothing, just sit. This is a strong prescription when the mind is overrun with debilitating thoughts of unworthiness. It is and even stronger medicine when there's no promise or sign of anything changing. What are your reasons for doing your spiritual practice? What do you want to happen? It's best to be honest with yourself about your expectations. So even if maybe you sense like, well, my expectations are unrealistic or they're too big, it's like, 
being honest with what it is that we're really expecting can help us. So I know for me, one, one place in my life where um, uh, expecta- un, un, uh, acknowledged or realized expectations sort of hit reality um, uh, was uh, in the first year of my married life. And I tell this story a lot to couples that I do pre-marriage counseling with um, to try to get in touch with what your expectations are about what being married will be like. Because um, even though we have a, my husband and I was sitting in the back of the room, have a wonderful <laughs> relationship. I have to say, and I've, I've told him this before too, the first year of our marriage was probably the, one of the most difficult years in our relationship. And the reason was, one of the reasons was because I didn't realize that I had all these expectations about what married life would be like. I mean, we were, we were both working full time. We were working like different shifts, so we didn't see each other much. And I don't know what I thought. I guess I thought like magically that was just going to change. And suddenly it would be like my mom and dad where, you know, we worked during the day and we came home at night and had dinner together, and, you know, watch TV and whatever. And it's like, oh, that didn't happen. And so then I became frustrated, but I didn't even really wasn't cognizant of why it was that I was so upset until I started realizing that. So that can be for our spiritual life as well, really looking at what is it that we're thinking we want to get. And sometimes what we want to get could be wholesome, like maybe in when I realize those expectations, it's like, oh, can we arrange our life in a way that we can have a meal together once in a while? <laughs> like that would be helpful. So in our spiritual life also, we could say, okay, if I'm aware of the expectations, then can I, what can I do with them? So sometimes I might say, well, that part of the expectation is actually unrealistic. I could have compassion for myself, though, for nevertheless wanting that. And maybe there's another part of the expectation that I could say, oh, well, if that's what I want, let's, can I arrange things differently? So being honest with our expectations. So back to the commentary in the dream. Shishin whispered, the Buddha is here. Where is here? In the meditation room? In the bathroom? On the street? Everywhere. There is nowhere that the Buddha light does not permeate. The light from the Buddha was so bright that Shishin could not look at it. And yet he did not hesitate when his teacher said, let's go say hello. What a daring invitation. The Buddha is right here now. How will you greet the Buddha? And then, who is Buddha? Can you tap your own body and say this? Over time, we realize Buddha is nothing but our own body. Conditioned as we are to seek outside of ourselves, we are perplexed. How can I possibly be Buddha? When he prostrated reverently on the floor, Shishin felt the warm, bright light and profound sense of peace wash over himself from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. Through all his years of meditation, Shishin, by taking the posture of Shakyamuni Buddha, so sitting, sitting in Zazen, 
in the midst of his own disease, had been calling to the Buddha. So by sitting, meditating, doing zazen, calling to the Buddha. One night, the gap between Shishin and the Buddha closed. When Shishin awoke from this dream, he rose from his bed, sat in a cross-legged meditation posture. His whole being was suffused with the extraordinary vivid peace of the Buddha. And later, I guess when he told the teacher this dream, the teacher asked him, what did the Buddha give you that was not already yours? So this koan um, touches on the idea of original enlightenment, which we talk about a lot. And I want to just say um, something as I was preparing for this class, I also was interested in like where this idea came from. And so I did a little research and um, I have this, I bought this wonderful, it's a scholarly book, which I'm usually not, you know, it's really historical and very detailed, and that's not usually my way of like preparing for a Dharma talk or a class, but it's quite interesting. It's called Original Enlightenment and the Transformation of Medieval Japanese Buddhism. It's by Jacqueline Stone. And uh, so I learned a few things. Um, one is that that concept of original enlightenment, or you are already Buddha, everyone is Buddha, everyone is enlightened, um, that uh, arose within uh, medieval Japanese Buddhism, and probably other places too, but at least, at least in our tradition, we can you know, focus it there. Um, and I had always heard that, and it's true, that Dogen brought Zen Buddhism to Japan in the 13th century common era. And so I always just, you know, sort of shorthand thought, well, Buddhism came to Japan in the 13th century, but actually Buddhism was already in Japan probably since like the 6th century. Just wasn't what we now call Soto Zen Buddhism. There were different types of Buddhism. And Dogen was a Tendai monk. So he was already practicing Buddhism before he went to China. And when he re returned to Japan, um, he brought with him the traditions of the Kaodong school, which and then in Japan became known as Soto Zen Buddhism. That's my understanding of it. And I, if there's other people in the room who know more, <laughs> if I get something wrong, please raise your hand. Um, so this is this is from what I've read here. My understanding um, of this from this book: um, the Tendai Buddhism was the root religion from which the new uh, movements of Buddhism arose in the 12th and 13th century uh, in Japan. So Tendai was a sort of root religion for um, uh, Rinzai, uh, Eisai was the main founder of that, and Soto Zen, which Dogen was the founder of, and then a couple different strands of Pure Land Buddhism, um, and also Nichiren Buddhism, uh, which some of you are familiar with Nichiren Buddhism. Uh, is the practice of uh, chanting the uh, uh, verse of the Lotus, the name of the Lotus Sutra. It's, it's like in place of meditating, it's chanting. Not, not totally in place of, but like that's their main practice. So anyway, interesting that 
there's this, there's this one, you know, and then many, many petals, you know, moving forth from this one. And uh, it was with, kind of within this also that then, you know, in the Tendai was when the, when this original enlightenment idea started blooming as well. Um, and uh, a Japanese Buddhist scholar, Shimanji Daito, who lived in uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s, he, I think, was the first one to use this term, original enlightenment thought, or Hongaku Shisho, Shiso, to describe that, that idea. This original enlightenment thought this is a quote from the book, denotes an array of doctrines and concepts associated with the proposition that all beings are enlightened inherently. Not only human beings, but ants and crickets, mountains and rivers, grasses and trees are all innately Buddha. Liberation is reimagined not as the eradication of mental defilements or as achieving birth in a pure land after death, but as the insight or even the faith that one has been enlightened from the very beginning. So when Shishin's teacher asks him, what did the Buddha give you that was not already yours? He's putting forth that idea of original enlightenment. And this was something that was really reinforced at the Jukai-A ceremony in Los Angeles that some of us went to in November. Um, in this ceremony, um, nearly 100 people were participating in rituals that are usually reserved for uh, the ceremony at the end of one's formal training, a Dharma transmission ceremony. But instead, everyone received the precepts, which you receive the precepts as part of a Dharma transmission ceremony. Receiving the precepts is part of many ceremonies in Zen. And now, we're, you know, we're, we're doing them every month, receiving the precepts. Uh, reciting the precepts, um, so not exactly receiving, but you do receive them every time you recite them, so once a month on a Wednesday night, so you can look for that. Um, but in in this particular ritual, Jukai-e, it was extremely powerful and dramatic because here it is, the ritual that usually confers, like the, like I said, the end of formal training, you've got it, you're good, you can now teach independently. So we weren't all told we could teach independently, but what we were told was, you are Buddha. <laughs> like that was the message you know, over and over in a big ceremonial way. Um, one of the things, and I wrote this, and if you read the Sangha News uh, like a month ago, um, I wrote a little bit about my experience. So one of the, one of the parts of the ceremony was they had us, um, it was a big, you know, like church and pews auditorium. And then there was a stage where the, you know, the officials and the Akiba Roshi sat and all the high muckety-muck Zen people with the brocade robes and big hats. And, you know, it was very, very high church. So they're sitting up there. And then there was another, like, it's like where we have this table. It was like a huge altar that you had to actually kind of go up steps to put the offerings on. So and it was a, it was a big big platform. Anyway, they for the ceremony they cleared off the platform of the statues because there were also other statues above, and they put chairs up there, 
And then we didn't know this was happening ahead of time. <laughs> we rehearsed many things, but not this one. They had us go up and sit up there on this big, you know, on the stage, on the high altar. And then all the big muckety mucks came forward. You know, so we're up here. They're down there, like their heads are at our feet. And they start chanting. Let me see. I'm, you have received the precepts. I'm doing it chanting. You have received the precepts and now dwell in the realm of Buddhas and ancestors. Truly, you are a child of the Buddha. And then they circled us mm -hmm. chanting that. <laughs> so it was like really like we want to kind of. I was going to say hit you over the head, but it's not exactly like hit you over the head with it, but we really want you to get this in your whole body. So we're doing this big thing of making you go up there. We're down here. We're chanting. There's incense. There's all these things coming at you so that you, we really want you to know this. We really want you to know. You dwell in the realm of Buddhas and ancestors. So that is, you know, I feel like a really gift of our tradition. Um, and for many of us, it's like, we can't exactly believe it. So how, you know, how do we believe it? And then what do we do with it also? Even if we did believe it or do believe it, we still need to practice. It's not like then practice goes away. Um, practice is endless, but we can practice from the seat of already being enlightened rather than from the seat of trying to get something, being, you know, I'm not worthy, Try, I need to try to get something. And to me, it's really quite different, practicing from those two places. And there's a real freedom and joy and ease, even in the midst of difficulties that comes when I can practice from the place of I am already Buddha. So that's what I have for you today, and I would like to offer it up uh, for questions and, and comments, and I have some more reflection questions if, if we run out of juice. Yes, Kikan. So this idea... Um, Uh, that we have Buddha nature. So at one point you used the word something like you got it. Mm -hmm. At what point does kind of humility come mm -hmm. into this? Because mm -hmm. frankly, I find the concept of you got something mm -hmm. to be pretty dangerous. Yes. Just by observation of what happens in Buddhism yes. sometimes. Yeah. That's a really good point. I'm glad you brought up humility. Um, so yeah, if if um, I think from the side of someone wanting to say you've got it to um, to help um, transform or interrupt that I'm not worthy that I might have. So someone to say so like if I were to say to you or you were to say to me you've got it because I was feeling like I'm not I'm not worthy I'm not good enough. So that's one thing. But then if I say I've got it. <laughs> 
Which is the next logical that's, step. That's the next <laughs> logical step, but it's kind of a problem. That's kind of goes back to the need to continue practicing. So really the other, and the other thing we can balance it with is, um, there's really, there's nothing to get. <laughs> so there's that. And there's like, I don't have it as like independent from you or the crickets or the mountains or the dirt or the poop or you know anything right. else. It's like it's not like I'm special that I've got it. It's more like just unfolding and opening to that. So I if I say I've got it, I also am saying all those other things too. So I'm not putting myself above, even though like in the ceremony, they put us way up there. But like I said, I think that was to counterbalance the I'm not worthy. And then in the end, we come down and then we're with everyone. So yeah, that that really that the, the part about humility within, you know, so that when within that and especially after someone has a so-called enlightenment experience, what you do with that, if you then, you know, raise yourself further up, potential for causing lots of harm but if instead you can come back down oh and you know so it's it's kind of good if then someone makes a big mistake <laughs> even right away because hopefully then that person can say oh yeah i'm still a human being i still uh, it would still behoove me to practice and not put myself up there thank you thank you This, this may not be important, but I kind of thought original um, enlightenment rose out of Mahayana, and what I'm hearing is that would have not necessarily been the case when that arose, or maybe it would. I, mean, I guess I don't, and again, I don't know if this is very important to go into, but I sort of took away from what you said that this is how it rose in Japan, and mm -hmm. it would be in the Middle Ages before. Dogen, yeah, Tendai school. I think it was right around the same time as Dogen in the 12th and right. 13th century oh, okay. when it arose. Right. So that would be quite a bit after Mahayana yeah. schools rise. So I just wondered. I don't know. Like I said, I, I could. Ha I I just I'm I'm reading this book. I have not read it thoroughly. Yeah. Is one thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, Can you show the cover of the book yes. again? And it's called um, Original Enlightenment and the Transformation of Medieval Japanese Buddhism. It might be available on Amazon, but I ordered it directly from the University of Hawaii because I wanted to support, you know, where this is where it was published. So. We have a question from Martha on Zoom. Okay. Here. Pick this up. Uh, Martha asks, what if you are just looking for self-awareness an ability to be present and to be happy in life. Wondrous enlightenment. Um, if you're just looking for self-awareness and to be present and happy in, in life, great. <laughs> I don't, so I'm not seeing that's a problem. Um, and I think if you're, if you are on that path of, you know, opening to awareness, then other things come into your awareness as well. Like it could come into your awareness that you have expectations or that other people do, or that other people feel like I'm not worthy or that other people are hurting or that you're hurting. So I think, I think that's, um, that's what happens when you go forward with, um, I just, I want to be more aware and present. 
Um, and then, and then, yes, wondrous enlightenment unfolds from that. Is that what you were saying? That then that would just unfold. Do you want to say more, Martha? You can unmute too if you'd like to. Um, I was just like, what if you're not even seeking to be in the bright light and the and wonderment? <laughs> what if you're just seeking uh, to be here and now? <laughs> I, I think it's great. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I feel that there is this desire, like you're going to be at this high, high level. And I, I don't totally expect that. <laughs> I just like, expect to try to be here and now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I don't see that as a problem at all. I think that's great. Probably um, your practice will be stronger because you don't have that big expectation. Um, but also, it could be surprising. I mean, the bright light could still happen, even if you're not expecting it. <laughs> I, I think I think in one of the um, Dogen's fascicles, he says, when enlightenment occurs, you don't say, this is enlightenment, just as I expected. <laughs> it's like beyond your expectations anyway. So, And the bright light happened to Shishin in his dream anyway. <laughs> I mean, it still was important to him. And sometimes, you know, images or, you know, things like that come to us either in a dream or, you know, just in, you know, our waking reflections. And that can be important and help us, but it's not like the, it's not like a solid thing. It's just a point to it. Yes, Shokai. A lot of enlightenment stories that I've read, I'm thinking about what Martha said. Thinking um, that a lot of enlightenment stories seem to be about being here now as deeply as possible, being the enlightenment experience that a lot of people have. Uh -huh. That it's like they really are so deeply present that that is enlightenment. They're, they're really being in Yes. Right. I've, so I don't know if people on Zoom heard that clearly or even in the room, but uh, Shokai said a, a lot of uh, enlightenment stories are about people actually just being very deeply present in the moment. Um, and actually there's another story from the same uh, uh, book of Householder Koans that the, one of the Zen uh, training groups studied last month, I think. And um, I won't do the whole story, but the but the story was about uh, a couple, and one of the couple was always going to the Zen center and to retreats and sessions and things like that, and the other one was not, you know, so it wasn't into it. So they were just sitting at home and taking care of many things at home. And uh, in the story, uh, the partner that stayed at home would always say, there she goes again. <laughs> <laughs> when she left. And one time when she came back, she said something like, so did you realize great enlightenment or did you get, I forget how she asked it, but she asked some question like, so, you know, what do you think? Did you get it? And she, and she said, this is it. <laughs> so like she was coming back home and she said, this is it. So yes, just what is in front of us. Anything else?
All right, so then let's do a little reflection. And tell, remind me again, even though I, I set the schedule, I can't remember, what time do we end? 10.18. 10.18, okay. Great, so we can do a little six-minute reflection. So just uh, settling in to a meditation posture, or even just settling into your body. Being aware of your breath. Of your body. Feeling the contact points, your seat on the chair or cushion, your feet on the floor or your legs and feet on the cushion. And opening to this question of what beliefs do you harbor about yourself? So maybe it's a I'm not good enough, or maybe it's a I'm okay just as I am. I'm not going to change. I don't need to change. Maybe there's a belief of something's missing. Could be a belief like, I'm a shy person, I'm not good at public speaking. Or could be a belief about something that you are good at. Not all the beliefs are true and they're not all untrue. It might be useful to explore, though, those beliefs that take the form of negative thoughts. Maybe you never say them out loud or even think them through clearly, but perhaps they are there in the background. So asking yourself if a particular negative thought about yourself or belief about yourself is coming to mind, asking yourself, 
is this really true? How would I know if it's true? Could I invite the possibility that just because I'm thinking it doesn't mean it's automatically true? Can I see myself as Buddha? Can I remember to be humble with that vision? But at the same time to really let it in. So I thank you for your attention. Thank you for your talk.